0: This is really good to be here today. Um, I know most of you, um, but if you 'll open your bibles uh, to chapter luke chapter twenty four we 'll start at the very beginning and we 'll really read through the entire chapter, but we 're going to focus on a few verses towards the end. but I thought it might be helpful to get some context and so my goal here this morning is to look at basically look at three Truths about jesus 's response to the disciples near the end of luke twenty four and what i I want to talk about Jesus and his response to the disciples because when we look at the disciples we are we see their hopes their joys their failures, and we don 't just see that we actually are, are given a mirror by Jesus that we by which we can see ourselves and so We see his response. We're going to see his response to his closest friends. They were with him for close to three years. We're going to see uh, a glimpse into the long suffering and patience of God and kindness. And so, what we'll see here is that the response that Jesus gives to his disciples at the end of Luke 24, amidst their doubts and confusion about what's going on, we're going to see that Jesus wants his followers to take him. Number one, take him at, at, at his word. That the ability to take him at his word actually comes from Jesus, from him. And it's actually revealed by Jesus. And that when this happens, the result is the gospel that takes effect and creates a new spirit-empowered people. And so in this text that we're going to read, the disciples are experiencing the resurrected Jesus. Jesus had died. He was seen multiple times. By this point, but there's still doubt and confusion among them, so much so that Jesus actually has to sit down with them again and explain his word to them. He actually has to, key, after three years, multiple appearances after the resurrection, he actually has to sit down and reveal, keep revealing himself to them. And all of this is to show them, that the men that have been in with him a number of years, that this is God's work of creating a new Spirit-empowered people. So if you turn to your Bibles to Luke 24, we'll read from the very beginning. And what we're going to focus on is verses 36 through 50. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, "The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." Then they told what had happened to them. They told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And these are the verses. These next few verses are the, the verses we're going to focus on this morning. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, "Peace to you." And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And don't miss this next part. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay here in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worship worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. If you'll pray with me briefly. Father, we come to you as a people who needs our eyes opened to the scriptures. Father, this is a a special day for us as believers. Father, we celebrate the truth of the resurrection every day. But this day, Father, we are reminded all over the place that Jesus is not a priest who like the Old Testament priests, has to go in every every day or every so often and offer sacrifices for sin because that one sacrifice has been offered. And Father, you say in your word that Jesus has become a priest, a high priest, not on that basis, the basis of slaughtering animals over and over again, but he's actually become a high priest for us on the basis of an indestructible life. And we ask right now, this morning, Father, that you would, your spirit would be sensed and, and present. And we, we know, Holy Spirit, that you are present. Yet You live in us, but we ask that you would help us to, especially this morning, feel the presence of Jesus here. Uh, we ask that you would open up your word to us. I pray, Father, that you would set a guard over, the, over my mouth that I wouldn't sin against you. That I speak your word. And I pray, Father, that there, if anybody's here today that doesn't know Christ, that you would take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and that you would save them. And I pray that you would encourage us all through your word in Christ's name. Amen. So in our passage, we see Jesus appear to the disciples. They are confused. They, they don't know what's going on. And what you have here, um, if you were to, to go back just a few chapters, we read all of chapter 24. And we're focusing on verses 36 through 50. But if you were to go back a few chapters uh, in Luke 22 through 24, what you'll see leading up to chapter 24 is a vivid, vivid picture of Jesus' last days before the crucifixion. And Luke, never one to disappoint with details. If you read Luke, there's lots and lots of details that he provides. Um, He paints a picture of Jesus that explicitly connects the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to the Old Testament, just like a lot of the other gospel writers do. So an example of this is Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples. So this imagery of the Passover meal is lifted directly from the Old Testament. I would suspect that most of you here are familiar with that. This is connected to the great backstory of Israel, the story of the Exodus. God delivers his people from the hand of Pharaoh, and he brings low the false gods of Egypt. Or like when Jesus is actually standing. So in those chapters, Luke 22 and 23, Jesus is before the religious leaders of Israel, and he he actually quotes from the prophet Daniel, and it says, From now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is crystal clear that what is happening is directly related to Israel's scriptures. He actually says in Luke 22, 37, he says, right before he was arrested, he says to his disciples, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah, and it says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. The Christ, the rescuer, will actually be treated like a a criminal. For what is written about me, Jesus says, has its fulfillment. So he's quoting from the Old Testament and not only did Jesus point to what happened to him on the cross as the fulfillment of the old testament in Luke 24 he starts to appear multiple times to lots of different people put this in your head you're one of the disciples okay so try try to get your your mind wrapped around this you are one of Jesus's closest followers 3 days earlier your leader the one that you thought was actually going to be the the rescuer, the king, uh, the true king of Israel. He's actually uh, been put through, uh, arrested, and put through a, a mock trial of the worst kind. He's, he has false witnesses, false testimony. He's been passed back and forth in the night between leaders, political leaders, religious leaders. They don't know what to do with him, the religious leaders want to kill him. Then you've got someone like Herod who wants Jesus to perform some magic tricks for him. He wants him to do some miracles. And then you've got Pilate who wants to free him. And so basically, remember, this is in the middle of the night. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been scourged. He's been spat on. And whatever you thought Jesus was, whoever you thought he was, It's gone, absolutely gone. And in the midst of all of that chaos, there are reports of the tomb, that the tomb is empty. And the disciples heard it. They heard it from some women. As a side note, if you are in the first century and you want to report some events and you want them to be credible, you don't want to necessarily include the testimony of women. That doesn't add credibility to your story at this point in time, but still, the disciples they go check it out. Uh, they find an empty tomb and a missing body, and on top of all this, Jesus starts. Uh, Jesus appears to them, right on the road to Emmaus, and while they tell him about the event, they tell him about the events of the last few days, and their eyes are open, and they they realize that it's Jesus who they're speaking to. But if you remember what we just read. Two times Jesus has to open their minds to the scriptures to explain to them what's going on. They're not sure how to interpret uh, what's going on. So there's there's basically three points that I think that this text is honing in on. If we look through verses 36 through 50, there are three basic things that Luke is trying to tell us here. The first basic point is that Jesus' response to his disciples, remember we're looking at the way that Jesus responds to his disciples amidst all of the things that have been going on. <coughs> Excuse me. His response tells us that we have to take him at his word. Look at verses, if you've got your Bible open, look at, or your iPad or your iPhone, whatever you've got your Bible on. I've got mine up here. Uh, look at verses 36 through 43. Notice that Jesus responds to his disciples by asking them why they are troubled and why they are doubting. And from the text, it's really clear that the doubting has something to do with Jesus' physical body. It's all over the text. And in the midst of the doubting, what Jesus does is he stoops down to their level, and he actually offers them physical evidence. He even asks for something to eat. Can I have a piece of fish? I want to encourage you not to miss this. It is very, very encouraging that Jesus does not just rebuke and chastise, although he does do that. If you look a few verses up, he's telling them, oh foolish ones. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't simply ask them, why don't you believe me? Just do it. He actually shows them his hands. He shows them his feet. We're talking about real hands, real feet, real Roman soldiers. Real physical things that happen. And basically what Jesus is doing is he's, he's stooping low to show them that he's alive. It's, a, it's actually worth asking the question why did the disciples, thank you, why did the disciples respond the way that they did? So we see the way that Jesus responds to the disciples, but why did the disciples respond the way that they did? Their response was normal. It's a normal response for sinful human beings. Even though they'd been with Jesus for close to three years, they did not completely understand his mission. They did not, in, in, in the first century, people didn't just walk around thinking that people get up from the grave and start walking around. They knew, just like you and I know, that people don't just rise from the dead, that does not fit their experience. If you were a pious Jew in the first century, just think about, you've got a couple of categories. You've got Jews, you've got pagans, you've got Gentiles. So if you're a pious Jew, you're going to look forward to some kind of general resurrection. Most Jews, anyways. Not all of them. But you still only had the notion that this was some kind of general resurrection. you There weren't a lot of people, if any, running around in the first century thinking that the promised king was going to be, number one, treated like a criminal, number two, divine, and number three, killed, much less rise from the dead. But what if you're a Roman? So you've got this this basic belief about the resurrection for a decent portion of the Jewish people. But then you've got the Romans. If you're a Roman, many of the times, your belief is going to be that when you're dead, you're dead. It was common enough to see on tombstones in the Roman world uh, a saying and that was it. Not even a name, not anything like we would have today, but a saying that basically translated says that says, I was not. I was. I am not. I don't care. In other words, all there is is this life and when you die, there's nothing. People in Jesus' day would would think that A guy getting up out of the grave is just as strange as we would. That's why the disciples responded the way that they did. They were sinful human beings. And by the way, thinking about that, that Roman saying, or that that idea, that concept of this life is all there is, does that sound familiar to anybody? It sounds familiar to me. Our culture is steeped in that kind of thinking. I'm going to get mine. All there, this is all there is. All that I can, all that exists, or what is what I can see, what I can hear, what I can taste, touch. Think of the the drug addict who wastes all of his money on drugs to ruin his life for the next high. He's looking for that next high. Or that's an extreme example, right? But think of the the hotshot executive. He's on a constant quest for for money. And you ask him, how much money is enough, and he says. More than the other guy. It's never enough. This life is all there is. Or it doesn't have to be one of those examples. It could be something more mundane. Think of the university student. Think of the university student. They're, they're going to school just so they can go get a good job. There's no, nothing wrong with good, uh, getting a good job, right? There's nothing wrong with having a career, having a family. But this, this, this person has their mind set on Getting a good job and having 2.5 kids or whatever it is, you know, the, the ideal American situation. All of them, all of those things uh, sort of exude this, that this life is all that there is. Look at verse 41. Notice also that the text says the disciples disbelieved for joy and were marveling. His disciples were so happy they didn't believe it. If you're a Christian, have you ever felt that way? I mean, I know I have. This is a remarkably kind thing that Luke shows us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had moments of doubt about Jesus? Have you ever thought, my sins are too many. My guilt is piled sky high. No one can possibly take away m- my sins. Moments of doubt. I can. And then you hear this story. You think about all your sins. You close your eyes at night and you doubt and you think about your sins. You think, my guilt is too great. And then there's this, this thing that you're reminded of that Jesus has come to take all of my lustful thoughts, all of my twisted motivations. All my ambitions to get ahead and make myself the center of the planet. And he suffered the penalty that was mine. And then you think it's too good to be true. You're not alone because the disciples felt that way too when they saw Jesus. What about if you're not a Christian though? Basically all of this sounds strange. Probably does a bunch of old books ha- written hundreds of years. Most of them written hundreds of years before Jesus was even boin- born. They're supposed to be pointing to a, a no-name Jewish carpenter born in a backwater hick town of Galilee or Nazareth. Excuse me. I mean, Jesus is uh, Jesus comes from nowhere, right? That seems foolish, unless. It's true. The reality is is that the Bible was written over the span of a couple of thousand years by 40 different authors with one basic message that God's ultimate redemption of humanity comes through Jesus. comes through faith in Christ. The consistent testimony of the Bible is that God is the creator. He's the judge of the whole world. We are made in God's image. But because of our sin, we deserve His judgment. And the Bible teaches very clearly that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, and all of this so that we might receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So Jesus' response initially tells us that we have to take him at his word. The way that he responds to the disciples tells us that. Second point is that Jesus' response to his disciples shows us that taking Him at His word only happens when He reveals it. Look at verses 44 through 47. Jesus actually begins by pointing out what was written about Him in the Old Testament. Which if you're not a Christian or even if you are a Christian, the Old Testament is divided up into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And what Jesus is saying is that when you look at that, with all the the triumphs and the tragedies that you see there, all of that is pointing to him. Let's ask another question, though. So why does... So we see that Jesus responds to his disciples and is asking them, or and basically requiring that they take him at his word. Why does he respond this way? Jesus actually expects his disciples to know and understand what he's taught them, both from the scriptures and through their time with him for, for three years but he still has to open their eyes to see it remember earlier on in the same passage I just mentioned before he says oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken it's not as if this is the first time though that, that anyone had ever heard of these promises of God about sending a rescuer there are hints and promises of this in the Old Testament. Jesus actually says in John eight that Abraham saw my day and rejoice. Or take Paul for example. Paul's the uh, uh, Paul's the, the the famous apostle Paul who wrote two thirds of the New Testament. He says in the book of Galatians, chapter three, verse seven: Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith don't miss this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And remember, what's, what's actually causing a lot of the doubt? It's Jesus' physical body. They were with Jesus three years. He ate and did everything that humans do except for sin. He dies, they see him die. They actually take his body away. His body is actually taken away by Nicodemus. And here he is again. He's got scars in his hands. The problem uh, is his physical body. That's a huge part of this issue. But think about it for the moment. Okay? So at the very beginning of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve, and everything's perfect. Right? So there's just one command. They, they're supposed to stay away from one particular tree because if they eat of it, they're going to die and the entire creation is going to be plunged into misery. And along comes a snake or Satan in the form of a snake and he gets them to doubt God's goodness and questions God's, question God's words. And everybody here knows how the story goes. Adam and Eve eat from the tree and the rest is history, literally. Famines, death, sickness, plagues. But the story doesn't end there. If you keep reading, eventually, God promises eventually that there will be a rescuer. A snake crushing king that will crush the head of the snake but he himself will be wounded. If you fast forward just a little bit and you, you come to the next key figure in the Bible which is Abraham that we just read about from Galatians. Paul mentions him. So Jesus references him, so does Paul, numerous times. And through the promises to Abraham, God promises this deliverer. And And once this deliverer comes, the whole world is going to be set right again. The whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham's family. And as you read the Bible, you see several key figures that, that start coming along. One of them is King David after Abraham, right? King David comes. He's not the promised king. He himself commits Grievous sin. But God makes him a, a gracious promise. That he's going to he's going take one of David's descendants. And he's going to set him on the throne of the entire world. And so the rest of the Old Testament. Gives testimony to the fact. That the king has not come yet. Israel has some bad kings. If you haven't read Kings lately. You should read it. It's. It's sad. It, basically, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how Israel tanks the entire country. They're taken off into exile and into slavery. And the final words of the Old Testament end with the expectation that this king is going to come, but he doesn't. 400 years pass. And the same old stuff happens. And when you flip open your pages to the New Testament, Jesus steps on the scene. He's not just some random guy that comes out of nowhere. He comes in a special way. He's born of a virgin. He makes spectacular claims. He heals lepers. He raises the dead. And so... This is the basic storyline that Jesus assumes, but he has to explain it over and over again to his disciples. And remember, again, a huge part of the disciples' problem or why they were confused is his physical body. But think about it again from the perspective of another passage of Scripture. Think about Romans 5 where Paul is talking about how sin and death and sickness came through one man, Adam. But now through this New man, Jesus, the many are made righteous. It makes total sense that there's this, there's this man, this physical man, who dies and, and comes back to life again. But he, he has to tell them over and over again, he still has to open their eyes. Have you ever seen a beautiful piece of art? I don't know if anyone here likes art. Um, I'm not much of an art guy myself. But that piece of art was made by someone in God's image. They're creative. They can artistically express themselves. Have you heard, ever heard someone play a, a very moving piece of music? They can express themselves because they reflect the creativity of God. Or maybe maybe, uh, you know someone who's particularly uh, proficient at organization or administration. It's because they're made in God's image. They can think rationally. They can think systematically, organizationally. It isn't a small thing. If you're a Christian or even a non-Christian, whatever artistic ability or musical talent you have or administrative abilities that you have, come from God. And the point of saying this is that we we actually shouldn't be surprised that the disciples responded this way. They're sinful human beings. The Bible speaks about human beings being made in God's image. Human beings can do wonderful things, amazing things, not to merit favor with God, but things that they can do because they're made in God's image. But the Bible also speaks in radical ways about how sinful we are. It says things like you're, we're futile at our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. It says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says we take the delightful things that God's given us. The joys of family and money and possessions and relationships and sex and whatever else. Things are meant to point us to God's goodness. And we've said mine. It's mine. The radical way that the Bible speaks about humanity shows us it's necessary for us to have our eyes opened. You can read the Bible for 40 years and not understand it. You can understand the, the information in the Bible, but you've not had your heart opened. Even if you've spent three years eating, drinking, drinking, they performed miracles with Jesus. And they still had to have their eyes opened. That's what Jesus does though. That's what he does with us. He, did it, he, do, he does it for his disciples. And he does it f- for believers today. The third point, And last point. So Jesus demands that we take him at his word. But he also reveals that word to us. And the last point is that Jesus' response shows us that as God reveals himself and that we, as we take him at his word, this results in a spirit-empowered people of all different kinds. Look at verse 48. Notice what Jesus says. This would be, this would be really easy to miss. He says in verses 48, you are witnesses of these things who are the witnesses there are basically two groups of people that we need to look at here so if you, if, you go, if you go back up to verse 8 in Luke 24 the first people to come to the tomb indeed the, the first people to see the resurrected Christ were, were women Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary another Mary who told the apostles about the resurrection these were women and again, if you, if you want to add credibility to your story in the first century, this is not the way to do it. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony wasn't worth anything in a court of law, or much. And if you're a woman here today, if you're a woman here today that sounds offensive. And that's because it is. But what you need to see in this passage is that what God is doing is he's taking the insignificant things things that are insignificant in the eyes of men, and he's making, he's elevating them, he's making them significant. And this is just the way that God God does things. Just think of all the times that Jesus interacted with women. He raises them to a place of significance. John 4, Jesus sits down and he talks to the Samaritan woman about who the, the coming king is, the Messiah. The disciples, they come along, they're scandalized, they, it says in the text in John 4, they were amazed that he was talking to a woman, but no one said anything to him. That's amazing. These women, at the beginning of Luke 24, these are the people that God uses to launch his global rescue mission. He takes some of the lowest members of society and he elevates them and he makes them significant and he uses them for purposes which they cannot imagine the second group of people are the disciples. these are going to end up being the the missionaries the the apostles the um, and just kind of i mean most of the early missionaries were not apostles. there was everyday folks like you and me just went out, they spread out, they shared the gospel amidst great persecution, but these are the People, These disciples are the ones that God is going to build the church on, the foundation, Ephesians 2, built by the apostles and the prophets. They were the ones doubting him, though. He appeared to them multiple times. He just ate some fish in front of them. And what did they do? We're so happy, it can't be true. That's what they said to Jesus. That's what they said. Not to mention, think about this. So he says, you, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Think back to the cross and the time leading up to the cross. What did Peter say to Jesus in Luke 22? Just two chapters earlier, he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the, cro- the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. God chooses cowards. Or think about Mark's account. Mark 14 says, And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him. This presumably is John. With nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So you've got guards grabbing a guy. He's got a cloth on. He pulls away and runs away, naked as a jaybird, into the night. So what does God do with those kinds of people? He elevates them, the marginalized, the cowardly. He elevates them and he uses them to launch his global rescue mission, saving people from their sins. Look at verse 49. It tells us, it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So remember, the third, this third point is that, that the gospel that that Jesus has to we have to take Jesus word about the gospel and the things that the Bible says about him he has to reveal that to us and and when that happens that results in a spirit empowered people and Jesus says behold I'm sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high what does that mean when he says he's going to clothe them with Power from on high. The book of Luke ends pretty abruptly. It's amazing how abrupt, abrupt uh, the book of Luke is uh, at the end. But it's helpful to remember that Luke also wrote Acts. And in, in the second chapter of Acts, God pours out the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And this, this Holy Spirit was promised in several places in the Old Testament. Jesus actually tells his followers this in John 17. And <coughs> And the Holy Spirit is going to empower the disciples, these once cowardly disciples, to spread the good news about Jesus. Just, I mean, just read the book of Acts. They needed the Holy Spirit. They needed it. They, these once cowardly disciples and the people who actually believed their message were going to be persecuted by the Jews, by the Romans, famines, plague, if you, plagues. If you think about Paul, he was shipwrecked. He had demon-possessed girls following him around, bothering him. He had satanic opposition in churches that he planted. Then he was imprisoned and ultimately died. Ultimately was executed, most people think. Peter suffered the same some of the same things. Ultimately suffered death under Nero a few decades after the resurrection. These are the men who denied... Jesus. And this is amazing. It ought to encourage you if you're a Christian. Jesus demands that, that you and I trust him. But that only happens when he reveals it to us. And as he reveals himself, he empowers his people. So today we're we're celebrating the risen Christ, the risen Jesus. It's an indisputable fact. That Jesus has risen from the dead. If you're one of his followers. Trust him. Trust him. Trust the gospel. If you're not. Trust him. Ask. It's the same answer. Ask him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. I think of a friend of mine. Uh, that I've been sharing the gospel with this just this text as I have been studying it as just time and time again the Lord has encouraged me to keep praying for this this man that I'm friends with. I I've been sharing the gospel with one of my friends for six seven eight years maybe. I've read the Bible with him. He can articulate the gospel. He can tell me what the gospel is. But he he he, he doesn't believe it. I I love this guy. Like I've spent a lot of time with him. He's not my project. I actually love this guy. But he doesn't believe and because he's he hasn't had his eyes opened. Um and so I've been encouraged by this passage that just to keep praying for him. So if you know someone who you've been sharing the gospel with for years or maybe even just a few weeks, pray that God would open their eyes. That's the only way they can be saved.
1: There's a chapter in a book I've been reading about, The Life of Christ related to the resurrection and the chapter was called the The morning beyond belief the morning beyond belief and i think that's part of what scott was bringing out here Uh, just that uh, they could not believe it for joy and were marveling it was just beyond belief that they were seeing christ there before them And it it took a a continual work of Christ there, that opening of their their minds, to even grasp what they were seeing, the physical reality of Christ standing right there before them. (coughs) And isn't it true that as Christians, we need to continually have our minds opened? Because uh, there is that sense that we're just barely scratching the surface even as we do see some of these things. Uh, We know that there's so much more and uh, we need to have our our minds renewed daily. And uh, just uh, God surprises us sometimes with a verse that we thought we understood. And then we realize, whoa, there's a lot more there. I didn't see that before. So... We can thank God that he does continue to open our minds to understand the scriptures.